Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My, my, uh, well, good morning. My, uh, my mom is here. Yay. And, um, they go to, they go to Highview and I said, you guys can't come here. You can send your tithe. But, um, my mom always introduces me as the firstborn out of her womb. So, uh, there's that. Hey, have you ever been in a meeting that you didn't want to be a part of? Ever been in a meeting like, man, I'm just here. Uh, I'd rather be somewhere else. And, uh, and you're thankful that there are people that are there with you to kind of, you know, misery enjoys company. And so if you're going to be somewhere, you're going to be miserable. Um, and maybe not miserable, but hey, you'd prefer to be somewhere else. And so uh, Pastor Larry and I, along with Rose Condra, we were at a meeting a couple weeks ago, and we wanted to be somewhere else. Larry was given the devotional and um, wanted to be there to support him. And I was, I was, uh, I was given, the, I was given a, a, a report on church planting, and, and Rose was given a report on all the great things. And we were there, and uh, we were there as a family, you know, encouraging each other. And um, there was an individual that came with us. I, I won't tell you his name. I don't want to use the pulpit to, to beat up on people, to, to call people out. <laughs> and, and so maybe, maybe you know who this is. Um, there he is. You don't, if you don't know who that is, his name rhymes with John Pierce. And uh, John left during the prayer. So John's really, what, 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 what can we deduce from that? John's not godly, okay? John doesn't enjoy talking to the Father. And, um, and so Larry and Rose and I were there, and, and John, John left us. And uh, it hurt. It hurt real bad. And um, in all seriousness... John, I told John I was going to do this. I didn't ask for his permission. I just kind of told him. And uh, I said, hey, I'm talking about taking care of the family. And I, I don't feel like you took care of the family that night. I felt like you left us. Now, in all seriousness, uh, John is a tremendous gift to our church. I mean, you don't, yeah. Uh, he, uh, he is one of the most merciful, compassionate people I really have ever met. I had him in seminary when I was working on my Master of Divinity, so I, I really think of him like a grandfather. And uh, <laughs> wherever, wherever John is. But uh, John's a good friend, and uh, it's, it's a real grace and privilege to get to serve alongside of John under our lead pastor, Larry. Love you, John and Michelle and Pierce family, wherever you are. Hey, we are talking about taking care of the family. We're in this series greater than the sum of its parts. We've talked about unity in the body. We've talked about how every member needs to function and play their part and live out their role and responsibility. We've talked about last week, Pastor Ryan preached on building up the body. And this morning, I'm preaching on taking care of the family. The overwhelming uh, majority of instances in the New Testament where the word church is used is not referring to the universal church, but to the local church. So when the word ecclesia is used, fellowship, church, it's actually talking about what we're doing here, these local expressions of people who've been called out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians chapter 1, and we come and we express that as we covenant together to follow Jesus in a local church called Graceland Baptist Church, and we want to take care of family. We want to serve each other and suffer with one another and rejoice with one another 
Well, let me read you some of these scenarios, and undoubtedly they've hit home close to you. Maybe personally, you've gone through this, uh, one of these highs or one of these lows, or maybe somebody that you love and care for deeply has gone through one or multiple of these. Miscarriage, brain surgery, bouts of depression, struggles in marriage, trying to figure out this parenting thing, new baby, bankruptcy, new marriage, marital struggles, divorce, reconciliation, separation, demotion, promotion, cancer and injecting poison into your body, vacation and rest and retirement, death, a wandering child, getting older, early onset dementia, and the list goes on and on and on in terms of highs and in terms of lows, various ailments, difficulties, joys, and celebrations. And where would we be if we didn't have the people around us to walk through those with us? To walk through the joys and the highs and the celebrations and the rejoicing, but to also walk through the lows and the difficulties and the struggles and the hardships. God has created us to be social beings because He's a social being, and He's given us friendships, and He's given us a family called the local church. This actually began, I'll come back around the very end of my sermon, this actually began in the book of Genesis, where it says that Adam walked with God. The word walked is a Hebrew metaphor for the fact that Adam was a friend with God, and God was a friend with Adam, and that friendship was broken because they chose to disobey God by not believing that God was good and believing that God was withholding something from them. So they impugned the character of God, partook of the fruit, and then what did the wife do? The wife blamed Adam, and Adam blamed the wife who God had given to him. Nobody wanted to take responsibility. And so here we are in this mess, and that friendship that they had in the garden, this intimacy, this closeness was severed. And the Bible is the record of man trying to get back into good graces with the Father and the Father in His kindness providing a way in which we can have a right relationship with the Father. Be a friend to not be an enemy. And so we need each other. One of the truths that we understand, as you'll see on the screens, is that independent, self-focused living never gets us anywhere good. We need to come to the understanding and accept the truth that our walks with God are community projects. There's a saying that we say, and you've said it probably, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we lean in on that personal nature of the personal relationship with Jesus, sometimes to the neglect of understanding that our walks with Jesus are community projects. And so what happens is I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's privatized. I'm not letting you into my life. I'm not going to get involved in your life. Your relationship with Jesus is your relationship, and my relationship is mine. And that's actually true in one sense, that each of us needs to come to an understanding in our own lives where we understand we cannot save ourselves and God in His kindness and love has provided a way in which we can be forgiven, have real hope, real joy, and real peace, and that's Jesus. So it's theologically true. You have to make a decision. But to say you stay in your life and I'm going to stay with my life and you don't get the freedom or right to speak into my life and I don't want to walk with you, that's theologically untrue. The Bible does not know that truth because it's untrue. When we come to faith in Christ, it's a community event where we get to walk with 
Jesus. And some of our most deep and painful hurts have come in the church through relationships with people. And oftentimes that prevents us from leaning in, from taking care of the family, from serving one another, from su- for suffering with one another, for rejoicing with each other, to be a good friend to each other. But when we look at the scriptures, we're called by God's grace through the work of the Spirit, through the power of the goodness of Christ, to understand that life is not just about us, but it's about one another and how can we serve and care for the family. If you have your Bibles, let's stand together as we read God's Word. You've got your phone. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just two verses today, verses 25 to 26. It'll be on the screens as well as we're talking about taking care of the family. So let's read this together out loud. I'll start in verse 25 that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is God's word to you and to me. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of it. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray as we walk through these verses and think about what we need to believe and do, may you give us seeing eyes and hearing ears and a ready heart. May we believe and do what you tell us in the Bible, knowing that your plan and your words are for our good and for our joy. Father, may all that we do in the next several minutes bring honor to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul says there in verse 25 that there is to be no divisions in the body. God's desire is that there not be disunity and divisiveness. I have been a part of the church probably like many people in this room. You've been a part of a church where there's divisions. In fact, when I was a sophomore at the University of Kentucky, I went to a particular church. I invited two people. I had one person who was not a Christian, one who, who was a Christian. We got there, got there a little late because I was a college student, right? I slept in a little bit and went up to the balcony and there was shouting from the pulpit down to the congregation and there were shouts from the congregation back to the pulpit and And in the next several minutes, 250 people walked out of the congregation. So I've experienced disunity. That that image is emblazoned on the front of my mind. And disunity, divisiveness, undermining of what's going on in the life of the church is emotionally and spiritually and physically exhausting. So God desires that we be unified. So we want to champion and advocate and contend for unity. Jesus prayed for unity in John 17. That can be one of the most attractive or unattractive things about a particular church. You can just tell they're unified. They love each other. Or don't go to that church. They're They're disunified. They've got a horrible reputation in the community. And there are churches like that in southern Indiana that have a notorious reputation for hating one another and hating leadership and hating the community. We want to be people who are unified. There should be no divisions. Paul makes another point about the body in verse 25 and 26, that when one part suffers, the other part suffers. And when one part of the family, the body of Christ, the family, when one part rejoices, the other part rejoices. One theologian said, a thorn 
on the foot can affect the well-being of the entire person. Something so small, something so seemingly insignificant as a thorn can affect the whole body. And that's the imagery that Paul wants us to lean in on, that when one part suffers, it's not as if, well, we can't identify. We just come alongside and say, hey, I hurt for you. I grieve with you. I want to suffer with you. And so in the church and the family of God, there should be no private sufferings just like there should be no private joys. We want to celebrate with one another and we want to suffer with one another. He goes on in verse 26 to talk about this interconnectedness of the body because a human body is composed of interdependent units uh, hands and fingers and eyes and nose and feet and hands. No part can function in isolation. There's to be reciprocity with one another. If you suffer, I'm suffering. And if you're rejoicing, I am rejoicing. There's this understanding of corporateness and togetherness. Put simply, we are in this together. It's not God's desire. It's not God's will for you. If you're a member or a regular attender or even a guest, just I can speak to all of those scenarios. It is not God's will for you to come in on a Sunday morning and to check out, to not engage with the people, to not serve, to not be part of people's lives, not have people be part of your life, to not avail yourself with the competencies and skills and gifts that God's given you to use us for the church. A lot of times people check in and they check out and, and they're not really a part of the church and that's not God's will and desire for He wants you to become part of the family and be involved and be engaged. And this, these verses speak of the dynamic of a family. About 10 years ago, my dad had brain surgery, <clears throat> and uh, he had a craniotomy. His, uh, his head swelled up twice the size of normal, and uh, I flew up from Orlando, and I remember talking to the neurosurgeon who said, hey, you really need to have your bride and our newly adopted daughter, Lucy, and my brother was on staff at the church as well, his wife, Laurie, and their newly born son, Daniel. You really need to get them here because I'm just not sure your dad is going to make it. It's 10 years ago. And so he was grounded by the FAA. He was a pilot with UPS. And though I did not go through his brain surgery, uh, I, I grieved with him and I suffered with him and I prayed with him and I cried with him. And it was a very, very difficult time in my parents' marriage, in our family. And as my dad, who was this very proud, accomplished individual, retired from the Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel, was a captain with UPS. Now he's going to speech therapy and occupational therapy and physical therapy. And it was a difficult time. And we suffered with him. His suffering affected me. And about a year and a half later, when he had gone through all of his speech therapy and occupational physical therapy and got okay by UPS and FAA, when he got to go back to UPS and fly, you know what we did? We rejoiced. We celebrated that. And last July, he retired 23 years at UPS. And so his suffering and his rejoicings were suffering and joys that we took in our life. Or my friend Vanessa, who had had three miscarriages. And she found that she was pregnant and she was at the high-risk OBGYN, and he said, barring some miracle, you are probably going to miscarry this baby in the weeks to come. And her suffering was our suffering. And so we gathered around at my house, 15 or 20 of us, and we prayed that God would see fit in his kindness to spare the child, and that did not happen. And so what did we do? We grieved. We wept, right? 
What do we do as a family? If we're going to take care of the family, you don't get the freedom to just be relationally unengaged from the family. I'm sorry, we are a hot mess and you are as well. And we get to, we get to do life together. And one of the privileges and graces that we have is to suffer with one another. But we don't just want to suffer, right? We, we want to take joys. And so that same gal, Vanessa, was pregnant again. And we pray that God would have her have an uneventful pregnancy. And so nine months later, she had a little Elias. And then she had another baby and she had another baby. And so we, we, we just, the Lord was kind. And so what do we do? We, we celebrated what God was doing. Or how about my friends Michael and Nicole Terrell? Michael had abandoned his wife seven, eight years ago and his three young children. She was left really with no income whatsoever. He just left. Came back into the scene several years ago and told me he was a Christian because he had made a decision when he was 11. I said, you are not a Christian. For 30 years, you've lived a life of rebellion. Who are you to actually tell Jesus that you love and trust and follow him with 30 years of rebelliousness? Please don't patronize me with the fact that you think that you are a believer. The Bible says you're worse than an unbeliever because you've not taken care of your family. And over the course of the next year, he began to come into the scene and to move incrementally towards his wife who tried to file for divorce, but evidently it, you can't deliver a divorce, uh, a filing of divorce into a appeal box so it never went through. And so he began to move towards his wife and move towards his wife, began to help monetarily, began to move towards his boys, began to move towards his boys. And pretty soon he was allowed to come back into the house and they reconciled and they did a, a renewing of their vows and they came together at least once. Now they have a fourth child baby girl. What do I do? I rejoice in what God was doing in Michael and Nicole's life. I rejoice when someone who is disinterested in the things of God begins, begins to be interested in the things of God. We rejoice when someone who was lost is now found. We rejoice with the family, don't we? We take joy in what God does in other people's life. And I think that's at times more difficult than the suffering part. Because I'm just being transparent here, right? Church, we can do that. We can be transparent, right? We should be able to. I want notoriety. I want favor. I want recognition. I want accomplishments. I want joys. I want smooth sailing. I want easy living. And when God chooses to give it to somebody else, at times, at times, not all the time, I find it hard to take joys because I want that. Anybody with me? Seven of us. But if we're going to take care of the family, somebody in the back loud and proud, there we go. If we're going to take care of the family, we want to suffer well with each other. So when you're hurt, I'm hurt. And when you're taking joy in things, I'm taking joy in things as well. So to take care of the body is to be knowledgeable about, about what's going on. Certainly in a church our size, you can't know everybody in every situation. But with the little plot of land that God has given you to plow, and to grow and to cultivate the concentric circle of people that you have in your life here at Graceland. You should know them, and they should know you. And you want to be careful with the knowledge that you have, right? You don't want to mishandle it. You want to be mindful of the gift that you have of knowing what's going on in people's lives, the highs and the lows, the hardships and the joys. Well, what does it mean to be careful? How do we take care of one another? I think one way is that we want to be careful with that knowledge. One pastor said this, a friend, the church, should be with one another emotionally sensitive or spiritually sensitive to the inner topography of someone else's life. I love that language. The church 
should be emotionally and spiritually sensitive to the inner topography of someone else's life. We want to be careful. We want to be mindful of what's going on in people's lives. Let me read to you some verses from Proverbs where Solomon writes about this very thing, taking care of one another. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 20. Here's what Solomon writes. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Nate, where are you going with that? Let me, just give me a moment. 26 verses 18 through 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Or 27 verse 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Whoever rises early and wants to bless his neighbor but does it in the morning will be counted as a curse. Why does a man who loudly blesses his neighbor in the morning, why is it characterized potentially as a curse? Why does a man deceive his neighbor and say, I was only joking? Why do they do that? The reason is they are emotionally disconnected from you. They're not being emotionally and spiritually sensitive. I don't know you well enough that this joke is going to land hard on your heart. I don't know you well enough that singing loudly in the morning to you is not going to be received as a blessing, but as a curse. Now, I've been married 16 and a half years. It's not a long time. I've learned seven things. That's it. There's like a million more things I got to learn. And, and if marriage was about compatibility, we would have called it quits a long time ago. Because marriage is not about compatibility. Okay? How do you take people who are sinners and put them under one roof and say, work it? Like, you're just, that's, that's incompatibility. And God purposely brings incompatible people to help us understand we need Jesus. And so my wife has said many times, I think the only thing we have in common is Jesus. Like, we're just, like, we're just, we're just not, not compatible, but Jesus is more than sufficient. And here's one of the things that, that I like. I like the mornings. I like the mornings. I like to get up in the morning. I like to, to work out and meet with people early. And um, my, my, wife, my, my, no, my wife does not like the mornings at all. And early on, I thought I could convince her of this. I thought we can get up early. There's so many things we could do. We can read the Bible together. We can talk about our lives. We can confess sin. We can go get breakfast. And she said, no, 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 no. We have a sign and it says, uh, all I need to start my day is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. And so what I was doing is I was not being emotionally sensitive. I was not caring well for my bride by over the course of 16 years trying to help her become a morning person because she ain't a morning person. She's a 10 to 2 person and I never see her from 10 to 2 because I'm at work. Like that's prime time Lauren Milliken time and I never see her. But I stay away from my wife in the morning because she's mean. She's not, she's not a nice person in the morning. And for years, I was not loving and serving her well by trying to talk to her and engage in the morning. I was just being an idiot. What I wanted, I wanted to be a blessing, but she's like, your blessing is a curse. Be quiet. That's, that, that's Bible. That's not, I mean, I, I'm there, but that's Bible. 
saying the right thing at the right time. In this case, people are slow to get up in the morning. Their minds are a little sluggish, a little groggy. And if they're greeted by someone with a loud, cheerful song of praise, it's going to be received as a curse. Now, if you start singing praise to me, I think it's, let's do it together. It's great. But not my bride and not many of you. What about removing a garment? What's that all about in Proverbs 25? Removing a garment certainly doesn't help warm a cold person, just like vinegar reacts violently when mixed with soda. What he's saying is happiness just seems to be aggravated when you have a troubled soul. When you have a troubled soul and you have this person that says, life is Pollyanna, it's great, it's amazing. No, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's difficult. And what Solomon's getting at and what Paul's getting at of 1 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 6.2 and Romans 12.15 is that you need to be mindful of the people around you. You need to be emotionally and spiritually sensitive to the inner topography of their life. And when they're suffering, things are not all Pollyanna and amazing. And when things are going really well, you don't have to be Eeyore, melancholy person, Okay. Sometimes it's appropriate to rejoice with people that, we, that are rejoicing. So when I see Cynthia Puckett goes home, do you know what we do? Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! We rejoice with that. When people are going through difficult times with cancer, we grieve. We weep. We mourn. I'm sorry. And sometimes we just kind of, we need to be quiet and just have a ministry of presence. And just not say anything. Stop quoting Romans 8.28 all the time, Okay. Just be quiet and have a ministry of presence. And what Solomon's talking about and what Paul's talking about is when you're sad, I'm sad. We want to take care of each other. When you're happy, I'm happy. We do this with our kids, right? We do this with our grandkids. When your kids come home and they say they were bullied, what do you want to do? It's okay. Let's be happy. What do you want to do? You want to go down to Scribner Middle School and you want to throw down on that seventh grader, right? (laughs) And that's just good parenting. Now, don't do that. Don't do that because then I have to come see you in jail. Don't do that. But, but you give the gift of voluntary emotional attachment. When your kids are discouraged and sad and going through difficult times and they're wandering around their faith, can you be happy? You hurt, don't you? And when they're joyful and excited and happy, you're joyful and you're happy and excited. And your family that you go out to dinner with or lunch that you have in your home is not going to go on forever. You know what's going to go on forever? The church of the living God. So when your church family is happy, you've got a sister who's going through difficulties, you walk through the difficulties with them. And when they're happy, you are happy. Why do we give the gift of emotional connection? Why do we want to take care of the family? Because we are family. That's part of what family does. Now, why do we not do this? Right? You knew that was coming. Why do we not do this? Here's several reasons. Jeff Jackson, who's preaching at our Palmyra campus, he and I were doing sermon prep a couple weeks ago, and here's some reasons why we came up with why we don't want to care for the family. Maybe you can empathize with some of these. It's inconvenient and messy at times. I'm married, we have four kids, I have a full-time job, part-time job, we've got a wana, we've got swim practice. Sometimes people's hardships and trials are inconvenient and messy. And I'm grateful to God 
that God does not look at me and say, Nathan, you're an inconvenience at times. You're just messy. God entered into our mess, didn't he? He entered into our mess. What about no ROI, no return on investment? We live in a contractual society where if I do this for you, you do this for me. If you uphold your end of the bargain, I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain. And we take that and it's transferred into the church and we think, there's not going to be a return on investment if I suffer with them, if I invest in that person, if I give, if I share, if I pray, if I go visit. They're not going to do that with me. And so just like alone in this contractual understanding, I'm not going to give to you because I know you're probably not going to give to me. But that's not what Christians are. Christians are covenantal people, aren't we? That God has given us what we did not deserve and continually pours out grace and mercy and kindness to us. And aren't you thankful that God doesn't treat you like a contract? But based upon the covenant of the new blood found in Christ, that promise that was made, ratified, established, made secure in Jesus' blood, you get the covenant affection of God. All the promises of God are yes in Christ, and He'll never leave you nor abandon you, but He pursues you relentlessly every day. And we're supposed to model that with one another. Time, I don't have the time. I think one of the things that we should all do, and this is what we do, and we don't always do this, but we try to. At the beginning of the week, we think about the various roles we have. Husband, dad, pastor, North American Mission Board, friend, neighbor, and we think about all of our titles and roles, and we think about who's someone that we need to lean into, who's someone that we need to pray for, who's someone that we can write a handwritten note to, who's somebody that we need to call just to encourage, who's doing well. We, we want to be a church that intentionally carves out time in our busy, hectic, frenetic lives to take care of the family. What about this one? Fifthly, in action. I remember when I was in the hospital and nobody came to see me. I remember when I was going through a difficult time in my marriage and nobody came alongside of me. I remember when I had hardships and I don't think the lead pastor came and visited me. I remember when I had joys and nobody said congrats. And what happens is things happen in the past and somebody didn't take care of you. And I'm sorry for that because in this room we no doubt have a myriad of testimonies of where the church has failed us, right? And because we, we just, we fall short. None of us has arrived. We're going to be the recipient of sometimes not the best care, not the best love. But here's what we do. We let the track play. We let the record play on and on and on. And we listen to ourselves. And because we've not received care, we're not going to give care. And what you want to do is you want to stop the track. Stop the record. CD, Bluetooth, whatever, stop it. And choose by God's grace to give what they don't deserve, which is what? Grace. And Christians are grace people. Lastly, why do we not care for the family? How do we, why do we not take care? Well, someone might say, it's just not me. It's just not me. I just don't want to take care of other people. I don't want to suffer with them. I don't want to grieve. People are messy. And I, I just don't want that. Friends, if God is love... 1 John chapter 4. And if we see the authenticity of our belief in Jesus, as John says in 1 John, by loving one another, 
we do not have the freedom to say, it's just not me. It's part of being changed by Jesus. Do you know, I don't want to love you sometimes. I don't, I don't want to grieve with you. I don't want to pray with you. I don't want to come visit you in the hospital. I don't, I don't want to come alongside you with hurts and hangups. And that's the fleshly Nathan talking. But Jesus changed me at age 10. I became a Christian. And over the course of the last 30 years, I'm trying by God's grace to grow in my understanding of what God has done in my life. And I understand it's not about me. And he's given me a desire to want to suffer with those who suffer and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. I want to have an other-oriented posture to my life. So there's lots of reasons why we don't take care of the family. But what do we need to believe and do? We've walked through verse 25, walked through verse 26. What do we need to believe and do, right? Every time a preacher preaches, you should ask the question, what do I need to believe and what do I need to do? So what we do oftentimes is we'll look at the text and we'll say, we'll go from verse 25, verse 26, and we'll go right to us, modern day hearer, which is bad Bible reading. That's not what God wants. What we need to do is we need to read the Bible in its context. The saints in Corinth were having division and disunity, and they were arrogant, and they were prideful. They were not taking care of one another. And that was what was going on in the context. So you've got the context of the passage, passage, context, and then what do we do? Oftentimes, we still go right from context to us. But what do we miss? Who are we bypassing? Who's the one that can call Nathan out from darkness into light? Who's the one that actually can change Nathan from wanting to be self-serving and self-oriented to being other-oriented and, and, and selfless? Who does that? Jesus. So you got to go from passage, context, context to the gospel, because the gospel is the only way that actually can empower us to not think that life is about us, because you have the one whom life was all about and gave up his life so that we could have life and change us. So you go passage, context, context, the gospel, and gospel to us. So what do we need to believe? What do we need to do? Let me give you several. We want to engage and not isolate. We want to engage with each other and not isolate. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who isolates himself or herself breaks out from all sound judgment, meaning you cannot be the man, woman, boy, or girl that God wants you to be if you isolate. And you certainly aren't going to be taken care of, and you cannot exemplify care to the ones around you if you isolate. We want you to engage with one another. And I realize that sounds a little scary. I've been hurt, or people are going to get to know me. But this should be increasingly more and more a safe place where we bring all our hurts, hang-ups, struggles, failures, and we link arms together and we take care of one another. Engage, don't isolate. Live in between. Have a perspective where we live in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. Revelation 20, the new heavens, the new earth. Genesis 3, what happened? Brokenness. You know, you have a little subheading in, in the beginning of Genesis 3. It says the fall. I don't think that quite does justice to what just happened. You could say the utter devastation and destruction of everything that man woman knew. That might be a better subheading, okay? Genesis, we want to live in a Genesis, we live in a Genesis 3, Revelation 20 world. And Jesus lived in that world. He stands above it. But in John 11, what happened? His best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus had died. And the shortest verse in the Bible, if you're looking for Scripture maybe to memorize, you want to start that discipline, here you go. Jesus wept. There you go. Jesus wept. And he wept. Why did he weep? It was 
He loved Lazarus. They didn't quite get his identity. But he knew, he knew this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he knew what was coming was the cross. And he knew what's coming way down the road. He's going to return. And everything, everything is going to be made right. Everything that's broken and wrong is going to be made right and fixed. But right now we live in a Genesis 3, Revelation 20 world. So marital conflict, early onset dementia, divorce, cancer, fill in the blank. It is part of our sin-ravaged world. We pray for God to intervene. We pray for healing. We pray for God's grace and mercy. And yet we should not be surprised when all these things happen because we live in between a Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 world. What else should we believe and do? We should take steps to care. Maybe you've not been engaged. You're like, man, I, I believe the Lord wants me to get more engaged. And how can I take care? And there's so many ways that you can help take care of the family. How do we care well for others? Ministry of presence, pray, but really pray. Would you be encouraged or discouraged if every time you prayed, told someone you prayed, and you didn't pray, it was like put up on a screen and everybody knew. Praying for you, brother. Like that's just become like this superficial greeting, like praying for you, thinking of you, praying for you. Like prayer is a commitment of relationship and a cry of dependence. Father, I pray for Heather Vian. Father, pray for Cynthia Puckett. Father, pray for a lead pastor. I'm asking you to work. I want to talk to you, Father, and I'm praying for them. When you tell someone you're going to pray, really pray. It's one way you can take care of the family. When people laugh, laugh with them. When people cry, cry with them. When people mourn, mourn with them. When people suffer, suffer with them. What do we need to believe and do? Engage, don't isolate. Live in between a Genesis 3, Revelation 20 world. Take steps to care and care well for others. But what's at stake? So we need to take care. What, what's at stake? Two, two thoughts and then I'll close. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 to 29, that the aim of ministry... The aim of gospel ministry is to present every man, woman, boy, or girl complete or mature in Jesus, that we would grow up in Christ, that we would look more, smell more, believe more, act more, think more, look more like Jesus more and more every day. So what's at stake if we don't take care of the family is maturity in Jesus because God wants us to grow up and mature in Him. And part of our maturity is taking care of one another. Now, I said this in the first service. I hope this doesn't land hard on you, but um, around Thanksgiving and Christmas, oftentimes your family comes in from out of town or you go to someone else's town and, and, and you ha probably most people don't have a table large enough to accommodate everybody in the family. And so you have a kid's table and then you have like the big person table, right? And, and, if, and if you're an adult, you're thankful for that little moment of solace where the kids are in the other room. And... and you, you really want, if you're at the kid's table, you want to get to the big person table. Like, you want to graduate. Like, you don't want to sit with little Johnny picking his nose and eating his boogers anymore. You want to move, you want to move to the big person table, okay? And, and if, you're, if you're 47 still sitting at the kid's table, there's something wrong with you, right? You're, you're supposed to sit at the adult table, okay? But here's what a lot of Christians are doing. They're sitting at the kid's table year after year after year and they ain't growing up. They're just hanging out at the kids' table. 
They're not availing themselves to the local church. They don't avail themselves to read the Bible. They don't confess their sin. They don't have gospel conversations. They don't know what the Bible says. They don't lean in with their gifts. They don't serve. They don't give. They're hanging out, and they have not moved in years or decades. Can we all agree that is not God's will for our life? That is not God's will for our life. He wants you to move. He wants us to grow up and have maturity in Him. So what's at stake if we don't take care of the family? Well, part of this, we're not maturing in Jesus. But secondly, it's even more important than that. Our job is to make Jesus known. And one way that we can make Jesus known is through our taking care of one another. You can make an invisible God visible with how you live. Rodney Stark, a sociologist, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he documents the first several hundred years, how Christianity spread so rapidly. And you know how it spread so rapidly? It did not spread because they had great preachers. It did not spread because they had great ministry programs. It did not spread because they had these great, marvelous church buildings. It did not spread because they didn't have persecution, because they did. You know why it spread? Because they loved each other well. That's, that's That's the thesis of his book the rise of Christianity. It spread so quickly and flourished all over the Roman Empire and all over all these continents because when people wanted to discard babies, infanticide, we call it, hey, I don't want this little baby boy. I don't want this little baby girl. Christians would come around and say, I'm going to take that baby boy, baby girl into my home. When people had various ailments, older people, and they would have plagues, and they would discard them to the outer parts of society, Christians would come around and say, all of life is precious, and they would care, and they would love. And non-Christians looked at all the Christians and say, how does Christianity flourish so well? And non-Christians deduced, they love each other. Do you want to know how we can make an invisible God visible? by what we do here, by taking care of one another. When you're sad, I'm sad. When you're happy, I'm happy. When you're going through suffering, I'm going through suffering. Why? Because Jesus entered into our suffering. Remember in the very beginning, Genesis 3, Abraham walked with God, a Hebrew metaphor for friendship. If you go all the way through the Bible to John 15, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus was desperately trying to convey to his disciples what he was about. And he said this, I'm here to lay down my life for my my friends. And suddenly all of the Bible could be viewed through the lens of friendship. Jesus is a great friend to sinners to you and to me. And we have the privilege of being part of a church called Graceland Baptist Church where we can be good friends to one another, and in so doing, make an invisible God visible to a watching world who desperately needs to know him. 